Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Thursday, August 25th, 2022, the 582nd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and thank you to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. To do that, you must be a paid subscriber at Substack. I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month, and you will get all of the content immediately when it's released, the writing and the podcast, and more as the show expands. So thank you to all of you who are supporting me and the work I do and the show as it expands. I cannot possibly communicate how grateful I am to you. So I hope you all have enjoyed the episodes from the last couple of days. Normally, they are not my normal episodes. I was traveling, 
but I assume that was okay because I got such great response to all of it. Uh, the interviews with Praying Medic and Just Human, as well as the essay, A Story About Reality, that I have finally read and recorded and put out there. I'm going to be recording the sides of history, and I'm planning on putting that up on Saturday or Sunday this weekend as a bonus episode, and I'm trying to book some more interviews in the near future. So obviously there was a lot that has happened since my last normal episode on Friday, and I will continue to update some of that stuff and kind of pull it into podcast episodes as we go forward. I definitely want to spend some time on Mike Lindell's Moment of Truth Summit from over the weekend. I thought it was awesome. I especially enjoyed the presentation by Kurt Olson and others, uh, Jeff O'Donnell, about Dennis Montgomery and the PCAPs and the information that Lindell came into possession of. Very few people have paid attention to that over the past year. It was just too easy to call the cyber symposium a waste of time or a dud or a flop or whatever. A lot of people thought that all of that was for nothing. Lindell had hyped it up so much and then didn't deliver. That was the common refrain. I never bought into that. You can listen to the episodes from a year ago where I discussed the cyber symposium in depth. I believed the PCAPs were real. I believed that the PCAPs were captured at the time of the 2020 election and other elections. And I believed that Dennis Montgomery was responsible for capturing them and that Dennis Montgomery wasn't the bad guy. We were told he was. Now, one of the people who was most prominently spreading that story from our side which made so many people believe it, was Larry Johnson, a man that Mike Lindell called a CIA asset on stage at the Cyber Symposium last year. He publishes occasionally in The Gateway Pundit. Now, I don't know Larry Johnson personally, but I know that he has a big problem with Dennis Montgomery. And that was apparent in reading the work that he did about Dennis Montgomery that he published in The Gateway Pundit. That Reporting by Larry Johnson, his position on things had been backed up in various mainstream media reporting over the last however many years. And all of that was essentially a character attack on Dennis Montgomery. Dennis Montgomery should not be believed because he's not a trustworthy person. That is the media narrative that we were being fed for a very long time. Now, it is impossible for me to know 100% who's good and who's bad, which is why I generally stay away from that stuff, except when I can see someone clearly working to fix election fraud. And there are probably some, some infiltrators even within that who are trying to use the election fraud narrative uh, to gain more power or to you know, function as a limited hangout so that you know just a little bit, but that it's not a big deal, kind of sweeping things under the rug. And it's possible that we have missed some of those. We will find them out in time. Or it's pretty easy to tell that someone is a bad guy if they hold prominent positions within the global communist order, people who are trying to 
create the one world order and the communist utopia that they have been dreaming about for so long. The technocrats and the transhumans. I'm fairly certain that my judgments on them being bad are correct, but I'm open to the idea that there are infiltrators in that direction, too. But otherwise, I have a real problem with labeling people bad guys and then dismissing everything they say, especially when the truth or falsity of what they're saying is really, really important, right? So if Dennis Montgomery had what he said he had, and there was no reason to believe he couldn't have had it, right? That was never the argument. Dennis Montgomery couldn't have gotten this information. He didn't have the ability, whatever. Some people will make that argument, but I don't think it was ever made well. The primary argument was Dennis Montgomery is not a good person who can be trusted. Therefore, let's ignore whatever he might have based on this attack of his character. And that should be pretty readily seen as an ad hominem approach to judging Dennis Montgomery's information. And I think that that leads to a lot of terrible judgments. What would have happened this past year if people had spent more time analyzing the actual situation and not dismissing it because we were told Dennis Montgomery's a bad guy? You have to wonder about that stuff. It's no different than any of the other issues. Sure, it's a technical thing. You feel like you can't personally get close to it. There's not enough information to really judge. Well, that's why you keep an open mind about it gauge the importance of the matter being discussed and then focus on the actual matter and not proving that you agree Dennis Montgomery is a bad guy. That's not really worth talking about. And I have the exact same beliefs when it comes to other people who Larry Johnson and others have attacked, specifically Tori Maras and Lynn Wood. Are they bad guys? I don't know. They don't seem like it to me. They do say some pretty extreme things that people don't like. Their characters have been consistently attacked. So a lot of people have a tendency to begin ignoring them after a while. They just assume, well, you know, everybody must have checked. Maybe these people really are bad and we can just ignore them. No, you can't. Even if they're bad, you shouldn't ignore them. That's why I don't ignore CNN or the Washington Post. I know they're bad. I know they're terrible sources of information in some sense about what might be true, but it's still information among other information. And that information itself has a value totally apart from who's giving you the information. Who's giving you the information should only indicate where biases might be so that you can look for those biases. No one, especially not me at least, is ever trying to tell you to trust these people or distrust them based on my opinion of them. That is not how I operate. And the reason I don't operate that way is because I don't want other people to operate that way. I think we have to get rid of those ideas. It is entirely possible that if this Dennis Montgomery stuff comes all the way through as I expect it to, Dennis Montgomery will very likely be one of the greatest American heroes and patriots of this time for doing what he's done and then dealing with the attacks and no matter what it costs him in his personal life. Think about the mainstream media articles about him, right? And apply this to other people as well. 
If you were Dennis Montgomery and you had information that could destroy the unit party, if you had information that could destroy the election fraud apparatus and make it impossible for them to retain power, which, by the way, is what that is. Okay, the election fraud apparatus is everything. Not only does it put all these illegitimate people in office so that they can implement the global agenda, it also tricks us about what our fellow citizens believe. We have a false representation of what the voting populace of America believes based on the results of fraudulent elections. Joe Biden didn't get 81 million real legal American votes. Donald Trump got at least we should expect 75 plus million real legal American votes. And who knows how many of those were destroyed? Who knows how many of those were counted for 0.6? I mean, three fifths of a vote. Where have we heard that before? But we get the idea that, well, maybe, you know, it, maybe it wasn't 81 million to 75 million, but Biden's still the president. There's no way there could have been 6 million fraudulent votes. Except it turns out there's way more than 6 million fraudulent votes. And there's more than ample evidence to prove that in every state around the country. You can look at Seth Keschel's work. Donald Trump won 45 plus states in 2020. I said it then. I'm saying it now. It's going to be proven to whatever degree you need it proven. But that's the reality. And we are a majority America first country. People do understand what has been done. Well over half the country has been suspicious that election fraud might have affected the outcome or certain that election fraud affected the outcome for almost this entire time. And it's only grown since then. People aren't going the other direction and becoming communists. They're realizing what they were a part of and they're leaving it. And that, of course, is why we're getting all the presetting of narratives about how the Democrats really have this strong chance to keep the House and the Senate. Everybody just looks at Nate Silver and they're like, oh, well, that's enough expertise for me. And you get a couple of stories about Joe Biden buying votes with college loans or the GOP is too inept to even keep our money from being sent to Ukraine. This is all uniparty stuff. This is uniparty desperation. They are trying to figure out storylines they can use to justify the election fraud they plan to commit in November. These stories aren't real. They are fake. There is no blue comeback. The idea that voters who have been legitimately oppressed by their government for the last almost three years by the time the election rolls around are going to be swayed by any of this stuff is absolutely mindless. Joe Biden's going to pay off $10,000 or $20,000 of someone's college loan, and they're going to forget that gas prices are through the roof and that they were locked down and masked up and that their industries have been destroyed and their families have been destroyed. Anybody who has gotten that far in their understanding, which many, many people have, a vast majority of people have, these people are not going to go back the other direction. I get that these narratives are powerful and that there's a lot of public chatter about them, but they don't last. Every one of them gets obliterated in no time, just like the rest of the stories they try to pull.
I mean, we just had an FBI shooter narrative that disappeared in a matter of hours. What happened to the FBI shooter in Ohio, the guy that tried to attack the FBI field office with a nail gun and then had a uh, an armed shootout with police? What happened to that? They spent a little time in the evening trying to make truth social the problem. Maybe they could take it down. But the story completely disappeared because it didn't work because no one believed it. Stop assuming that everybody else is trusting the mainstream media when the mainstream media is showing you that people don't trust them. They're showing you with how able they are to hang on to their key elements of the stories that they're trying to convince the public of. Think about how the Mar-a-Lago raid would have went down 15 years ago or how the FBI shooter narrative would have developed 15 years ago or any of the various mass shootings that we've seen, all of which are at best extremely suspect. These stories all exist to elicit a reaction from the public. They want people to believe that the country is far more divided than it is. And nothing serves that agenda more than election fraud because it convinces people that the country really does have these two halves. It's always one half against the other half. That's not how it is now, which is not to say everyone is fully on our side. It's just that they don't believe what they're being told anymore. And the speed at which the media switches narratives on really important things is the proof of that. They have to keep trying new stories because the old ones aren't working. So anyway, I traveled to the West Coast. I was down in Los Angeles for the first time in a year and a half. The first time since I left after living in and around Hollywood for 18 and a half years. And I was really looking forward to the trip because I wanted to get the temperature of what Los Angeles was like. I wanted to be on the ground and see it all for myself and talk to some of the people and see how everyone was interacting. And it was a very strange trip indeed because the town is just so weird. In many ways, it seems like a complete ghost town. People still have not really emerged from the lockdown conditions that they gladly accepted Restaurants and bars are generally empty. Some of them obviously still do really well. More popular spots still do well. But there's a Korean barbecue place that I always love to go with a friend of mine, the guy I stayed with. And we used to go have dinner there any night. And it wasn't always busy, but it was usually pretty busy. It was a popular spot. Now they only serve dinner on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights. That's terrible. Restaurants don't operate at terribly high margins. And so if they consistently are open without business coming in, it doesn't make sense at some point for them to remain open. And obviously, I didn't discuss this with them, but you can assume that they're eliminating Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night dinner at a Korean barbecue because the amount of business isn't warranting them being open. It's good that they're still open Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Hopefully they can ride it out and then bring back their full schedule because the place is great. But that's a pretty clear sign of the struggle. My friend drove us up and down uh, Melrose Avenue and Sunset Boulevard around 
9 p.m. on a Monday night. Melrose was particularly dark. Businesses had apparently just gone completely out of business. The signs outside of businesses were not lit up at night as they usually are. Places are shuttered and closed. There was virtually no foot traffic anywhere. That's not a normal thing. And the people who do go out, that's changed a lot too. I was all over the city at different places that I used to go all the time, places that I would see people I knew, barely ran into anyone the entire time I was in town. I was on the ground in LA for just over three days and ran into one person. Now, that's maybe not unusual for most people in most cities, but I spent 18 and a half years there working in Hollywood nightlife. At the height of that, I had 5,000 contacts in my phone. I could barely go anywhere and not run into people that I knew, at least like faces, right? But this happened once or twice the entire time I was in town. To me, that's crazy. And this isn't just my observation. I obviously had these conversations with people while I was out there and they were like, yeah, so many people have moved away. No one really goes out anymore. People stay home for the most part. And they talk about how crime has risen. It certainly has. We all see reports of that. There are billboards in Los Angeles talking about how no one should move to Texas because of the Uvalde shooting. Oh, move there if you're not worried about your kids getting shot like they did at Uvalde. Those are real billboards in California right now. So people definitely are moving out, and we've seen plenty of reporting on that aside from any personal experience we might have. But if you look at the situation as it exists there now with all these places being closed, with foot traffic down to nothing, people afraid to leave their houses or maybe not afraid and maybe they've just developed new habits. Maybe they just like being at home. But the culture has been changed drastically. You look at these results, you know what it's from. People got accustomed to staying home from lockdowns. We're told stories about crime. You see the homelessness and everything feels kind of dangerous and pointless. People just aren't really that concerned with living full lives anymore, it seems. And of course, we know that was one of the goals of the whole pandemic project to begin with. They want people staying at home. They don't want restaurants and bars being open so people can congregate. People congregating is how people realize that other people aren't actually afraid, despite what they may post on social media. And I used to often talk when I lived in Los Angeles, especially when I was first starting High Noon in August of 2020, that I would go on long runs at various places in the city wearing a Keep America Great hat, and I would just pay attention to people's reactions. So I planned to do that when I made this trip, and I did do that for three days. And there was barely a reaction. In the same places where I used to find communists just screaming their heads off at me, there was virtually nothing. And I want my experiment to be effective, so I try to make eye contact with people and give them a little smile or a little head nod as I run by. And most of them just looked with blank stares and moved on. And while I would have thoroughly enjoyed triggering many people noticeably, that would have made my day, 
It didn't really happen. And I have to take that as kind of positive, too, because at least if all of these rich Karens and the dudes who want to sleep with them don't really have it in them to react in a major angry way upon seeing a red hat and the words America great, then maybe on some level the fever has broken. And there was another interesting thing I noted, even being in groups of friends, some of whom have stayed in touch the entire time and stayed supportive and we've remained friends and others who I really haven't seen at all or kept in touch with. People just weren't terribly bothered by the fact that they had been lied to the whole time. They kind of understood in some sense that I was right. They've understood now that they've been lied to. And that's huge. And they understand mostly that they've been lied to about COVID. And they're beginning to wonder why they did all those things. They haven't really processed the entire thing yet, as far as I can tell. And it seems like there's an active initiative for everyone to agree that everyone has amnesia now. We just don't talk about these things anymore. We kind of understand that we got tricked, but now it's happened and we should just move on and continue to lead our lives and pursue our own self-interest and our goals, whatever they may be. So they weren't responsible when everything was happening and they were supporting it on social media and in their conversations and they were disavowing people who disagreed. They were just following the science and trusting the experts and basically doing what they were told, but thinking that they were well justified in doing what they were told to the point where it was all actually their choice. They had agreed to participate in this program, realizing that if everyone did the exact same thing, everything would work out just fine. And either way, it wouldn't be their fault. Remember, they believed that all of this was justified on the idea of better safe than sorry. And they tell themselves that they're fine and their career is still progressing and working from home wasn't all that bad and ordering Uber Eats wasn't all that bad, which is the sort of thing you can do if you basically ignore all of the real signs of a city in collapse. The homelessness is as bad as when I left. It is truly disgusting and sad. The traffic is worse. The real estate market is worse. Everything is more expensive. The gas is still 540 or 580 for regular, depending on where in the city you are. The restaurants that survived have been forced to jack up their prices. They still have COVID Nazis on set orchestrating the entire COVID regime within the production environment. I've had people in the industry tell me now that up to 10% of production costs is being totally devoted to propping up the COVID regime on set, the testing and the masking and the shielding and having an employee there to tell everybody what to do and make sure that everyone's following the rules. Rents are going up. People who have had enough have left town and they're being immediately replaced by presumably rich kids 
because they spend their days filming themselves on Instagram and TikTok trying to become influencers. They go out and that's what they do. They are totally consumed with projecting a certain image to the rest of the world, even though their life, their actual lived experience is nothing like what they're projecting through social media. And while more and more people wake up and they come to our side in terms of people that were there, they still aren't out there shouting it out. They're not out there saying, hey, all of this was wrong. Hey, we need to stop all these things. And that part is particularly sad because them standing up and beginning to talk about this is what breaks the spell of the communist majority that everybody believes is still in place. I took a lift back to the airport yesterday and the driver the entire time was telling me how everything was getting too expensive. It's almost impossible to even live in L.A. And, you know, he's a lift driver. He's working all day. That's not an easy way to get rich, but it used to be enough to pay your bills. But that place seems basically on life support right now. It's a ghost town. And the people who are out and about are trying to detach from everything that has just happened. There's no responsibility. There's no idea of what might come next and how we might avoid it. It's just living moment to moment in a permanent state of total confusion. And everyone basically agrees that it's better to forget. And while that's not the best possible outcome or even close, it is much better than violent anger against other people who aren't following the rules. I did not put a mask on the entire time I was there. Not once in the whole time I was traveling was I even asked to put a mask on. And there aren't enough people masking for the unmasked to even feel threatened by a majority, like they're not fitting in, like they are going against the rest of the crowd. All of that stuff seems basically over except to the people who are really clinging tightly to it. And I didn't see too much of that. When California realizes that their state has been put into the condition that it's in, particularly within the big cities, as a result of election fraud, and we can get all of these awful people out of office and put some people in who actually want to make a difference and fix things, I imagine the city can probably snap right back to being normal relatively quickly. But that's only once it's completely unchained. Election fraud is key to that unchaining. Right now, there are just chains wrapped around everything. And it's very sad, but hopefully it's also very temporary. Because I do believe that the spell is wearing off, at least from what I observed. It's like the entire city is recovering from a night of hard partying where they get together with other people and all agree that nothing that bad really happened and it's not a big deal and let's just move on. So here is something that no one should move on from. This is from The Spectator UK. And it's out today on the internet, but will be featured in this weekend's Spectator magazine. The Lockdown Files, Rishi Sunak on what we weren't told. 
When Britain was being locked down, the country was assured that all risks had been properly and robustly considered. Yes, schools would close and education would suffer. Normal health care would take a hit and people would die as a result. But the government repeatedly said the experts had looked at all this. After all, it wasn't as if they would lock us down without seriously weighing up the consequences, was it? Those consequences are still making themselves known. Exam madness, NHS waiting list surge, thousands of unexplained excess deaths, judicial backlogs and economic chaos. Was all that expected, factored in and thought by leaders to be a price worth paying? At the start of the lockdown, ministers had already worried that the policy was being recklessly implemented without anyone thinking about the side effects. Only a handful of key players at the very top made the decisions, among them Rishi Sunak, the chancellor. He has now decided to go public on what happened. What a hero. He's whistleblowing his own actions. When we met at the office he has rented for his leadership campaign, soon to enter its final week, he says at the outset that he's not interested in pointing the finger at the fiercest proponents of lockdown. And why would he? He's trying to grasp political power right now. And hey, we can just forget about all that stuff. Sure, it was absolutely the wrong decision and obvious in every way, but we were trying our best and better safe than sorry. No one knew anything at the start, he says. Lockdown was, by necessity, a gamble. Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance, the chief medical officer and chief scientific advisor, would openly admit that lockdown could do more harm than good. But when the evidence started to roll in, a strange silence grew in government. Dissenting voices were filtered out and a see-no-evil policy was applied. Sunak's story starts with the first COVID meeting where ministers were shown an A3 poster from scientific advisors explaining the options. I wish I'd kept it because it listed things that had no impact, banning live events and all that, he says. It was saying, you should be careful not to do this stuff too early because being able to sustain it is very hard in a modern society. So the scientific advice was initially to reject or at least delay lockdown. This all changed when Neil Ferguson and his team at Imperial College published their famous Report 9, which argued that COVID casualties could hit 500,000 if no action was taken. But the figure could be below 20,000 if Britain locked down. That, of course, turned out to be a vast exaggeration of lockdown's ability to curb COVID deaths. Imperial stressed it did not consider the wider social and economic costs of suppression, which will be high. But surely someone involved in making the policy would figure it out. This was the crux. No one really did. A cost-benefit calculation, a basic requirement for pretty much every public health intervention, was never made. I wasn't allowed to talk about the trade-off, says Sunak. Look at that. The man who is trying to become prime minister claims he was not allowed to talk about the impact of a critical and destructive public health policy that saved absolutely no one. Ministers were briefed by number 10 on how to handle questions about the side effects of lockdown. The script was not to ever acknowledge them. The script was, oh, there's no trade-off because doing this for our health is good for the economy. 
and apparently even people in leadership of the government had no choice but to accept that ridiculous notion as certainly true. Locking down for a theoretical health benefit was good for the economy that lockdowns would surely destroy. Oh, it was good for the economy in the long run because we're going to save all these lives up front. Turns out you didn't save any lives up front. It was bad for the economy the whole time, which was obvious. And more people will eventually die as a consequence of these lockdowns than they would have ever saved by locking down, which is something they could have known because lockdowns were never tried anywhere. If frank discussion was being suppressed externally, Sunak thought it all the more important that it took place internally. Isn't that amazing? Even if the media is lying to the public, it is not the responsibility of elected political representatives to inform the public of that. What they need to do is have the discussions internally so that all of them can make the best decisions for everybody. But that was not his experience. I felt like no one talked, he says. So they didn't even have the discussions internally. Isn't that amazing? We didn't talk about all the missed doctor's appointments or the backlog building in the NHS in a massive way. That was never part of it. When he did try to raise concerns, he met a brick wall. Those meetings were literally me around that table just fighting. It was incredibly uncomfortable every single time. Oh, no, he's the real victim. He decided to have those conversations internally rather than tell the public about what was really going on. And while he was fighting so hard internally, it just wasn't enough. And in fact, it made him feel incredibly uncomfortable every time. He recalls one meeting where he raised education. I was very emotional about it. I was like, forget about the economy. Surely we can all agree that kids not being in school is a major nightmare. Or something like that. There was a big silence afterwards. It was the first time someone had said it. I was so furious. <laughs> what a hero. One of Sunak's big concerns was about the fear messaging, which his treasury team worried could have long lasting effects. In every way, we tried to say, let's stop the fear narrative. It was always wrong from the beginning. I constantly said it was wrong. The posters showing COVID patients on ventilators, he said, were the worst. It was wrong to scare people like that. The closest he came to defying this was in a September 2020 speech saying that it was time to live without fear, a direct response to the cabinet office's messaging. They were very upset about that. Two years ago, that was his best effort to let the public know that the fear narrative sponsored by his government may not be the greatest thing. Another very bold stance. His eat out to help out campaign was designed to be an optimistic counter narrative. The survey data across Europe showed that our country was far and away the least likely to get back to normal. All the evidence was that everyone was too scared to go and do things again. We have a consumption driven economy, so that would be very bad. As indeed it was, the UK ended up with the worst economic downturn in Europe. Isn't that incredible? So the UK, the country that is 
not as much part of the EU. They had the worst results. If only they had done what the rest of the EU was doing, things would have probably been better. That's basically the point here. But how is that true? The EU was following the global guidance, just like the United States of America and governors of blue states, mayors of blue cities. They were following the global guidance. They got survey data that said the UK was the least likely to recover, and they simply accepted that. Oh, well, that's bad news, but we have to keep these measures in place. And that's what happened. Lockdown, closing schools and much of the economy while sending the police after people who sat on park benches was the most draconian policy introduced in peacetime. Again, that was obvious from the moment they suggested it. Number 10 wanted to present it as following the science rather than a political decision. And this had implications for the wiring of government decision making. It meant elevating SAGE, a sprawling group of scientific advisors, into a committee that had the power to decide whether the country would lock down or not. There was no socioeconomic equivalent to SAGE, no forum where other questions would be asked. So whoever wrote the minutes for the SAGE meetings, condensing its discussions into guidance for government, would set the policy of the nation. No one, not even cabinet members, would know how these decisions were reached. This, my friends, is what a communist government is like. Everything is from the top down. It is all managers and experts and administrators, and they decide according to their own agenda for the country what everyone else has to do. And they say it's all backed by science. It is the product of all of the best minds coming together to let the people know how they can stay safe from the very deadly pandemic. In the early days, Sunak had an advantage. The sage people didn't realize for a very long time that there was a treasury person on all their calls, a lovely lady. She was great because it meant that she was sitting there listening to their discussions. It meant he was alerted early to the fact that these all-important minutes of sage meetings often edited out dissenting voices. His mole, he says, would tell him, well, actually, it turns out that lots of people disagreed with that conclusion, or here are the reasons that they were not sure about it. So at least I would be able to go into these meetings better armed and still achieve absolutely zero results. But his victories were few and far between. One, he says, came in May 2020 when the first plans were being drawn to move out of lockdown in the summer. There's some language in there that you will see because I fought for it, he says. It talked about non-COVID health impact. Just a few sentences, he says, but he views the fact that lockdown side effects were recognized at all at that point as a triumph. Yet despite these failures, failure after failure after failure, he did not turn to the people and tell them what was going on. How is that politics working properly? How is that representative government working properly? Supposedly, these people are voting for their representatives and then the representatives believe they have no responsibility whatsoever to tell the people what's going on so that they can actually create political pressure themselves. That's what Donald Trump has spent his entire seven plus years now in the public spotlight in the political realm trying to do. 
He tells the people what's going on so the people can go get all the details for themselves, figure out what they believe is actually going on and make the proper judgments for themselves. But Rishi Sunak didn't do that. He put a few sentences in some report in May of 2020 about potential lockdown side effects. And that is him displaying heroism because the other people around him, his peers in government, made him feel uncomfortable for even expressing that much. Oh, to be such a hero in the face of suffering. He doesn't name Matt Hancock, who has presided over all of this as health secretary, or Liz Truss, who was silent throughout. As he said at the outset, he doesn't want to name names, but rather to speak plainly about what the public was not told and the process that led to this. Every time he says that's his motivation, it betrays the fact that he never told the public himself. Now, in the lead up to his potentially being chosen as prime minister, it's very important to communicate all of this to the public a year and a half or two years or two and a half years after it was necessary for them to know. Typically, he said, ministers would be shown sage analysis pointing to horrifying scenarios that would come to pass if Britain did not impose or extend lockdown. But even he, as chancellor, could not find out how these all-important scenarios had been calculated. I was like, summarize for me the key assumptions on one page with a bunch of sensitivities and rationale for each one, Sunak says. In the first year, I could never get this. The Treasury, he says, would never recommend policy based on unexplained modeling. Oh, really? He regarded this as a matter of basic competence. But for a year, UK government policy and the fate of millions was being decided by half-explained graphs cooked up by outside academics. But don't you see? He wanted to know what the costs and benefits would be of all these plans. He just wasn't able to get it. And when you're not able to get it from the sage advisors, where else could you possibly look? You couldn't go and try to figure these things out for yourself. A politician in that position certainly has no resources to put a team of staffers, let's say, on the case and have them try to figure out what could go wrong. That is incredible, isn't it? This overarching top-down government operation run by the experts and the administrators and the science, they simply don't have the ability to weigh the consequences and the members of parliament can't do it either. And, you know, that's really unfortunate because the people aren't allowed to do it either. When the people attempt to do it, they get censored and banned and called domestic terrorists and science deniers. But of course, that's for their own good. We can't have the public believing disinformation. We have to keep the power at the top. So unfortunately, we would love to get you all the information that would help you make critical decisions in your life, including who to elect based on their priorities and their honesty and their representation of the will of the people. But we just can't get that information. Only the experts have it. Even we as members of parliament do not have direct access to the authoritative source and to the science. So we're just going to have to trust them. This guy is literally campaigning on the idea that we did everything wrong, but it's not my fault. So 
if you guys will just forget about everything that happened, I'm your guy. This is the problem, he says. If you empower all these independent people, you're screwed. Sir Gus O'Donnell, the former cabinet secretary, has suggested that Sage should have been asked to report to a higher committee, which would have considered the social and economic aspects of lockdown. Sunak agrees. But having been anointed from the start, Sage retained its power until the rebellion came last Christmas. So they know that these overriding government boards and these outside institutions making decisions for everyone is a bad idea. And they believe that the way they could have prevented the bad outcomes is by having them all report to a higher committee. And then it's kind of stunning that in that same paragraph, they say what solved the problem. The problem was what they described as the rebellion last Christmas. People actually finding out things and creating enough public pressure changed the situation. But Rishi Sunak never told the public what they needed to know. How much earlier could that rebellion have come? How many lives could have been saved? How many negative consequences avoided if he had just been an actual leader and taken information to the people and created public pressure. This is a trick that he's trying to pull now. And the article continues on for a bit, so I just want to jump down to the end. Those trade-offs are apparent. At first, no one asked what all those canceled NHS appointments would mean. When the answer came, it was devastating. A waiting list that is projected to grow from 6 million now to 9 million by 2024. Their population is only about 69 million. So six to nine million people there waiting for care on an NHS waiting list would be like 30 to 40 million people here doing the same thing. But yet we're told that the socialist government run health care option is what's going to provide universal health care and it will be very safe and very effective and surely we will get wonderful health outcomes from that. And it's also worth noting that we were told Obamacare having death panels was just a scare tactic. It was a conspiracy theory. But what does it mean when they are choosing who to give care to and who not to give care to based on a set of priorities that dictate whether or not people can get basic care and under what conditions? Avoidable cancer deaths due to late diagnosis will run into the thousands. And who knows how much higher those might be now that people are getting the vaccine, which destroys their immune systems and leaves them more susceptible to everyone. You can see that for a couple of years now, a potentially huge wave of cancer deaths in the future will be attributed to lockdown. Whether or not the lockdown was the only factor at play. Then there's the economic impact. We are short of 300 to 400,000 workers, he says. That is a problem. Some 5.3 million are on out of work benefits, with many over 50s giving up on work entirely, a tendency that Sunak says was not spotted until it was too late. And surely you couldn't have thought of that in advance or known of that in advance. Nope. We have to do the societal science experiment of keeping everyone in their homes based on some theoretical positive benefit. 
And if you don't agree, then you don't trust the science and you're some kind of conspiracy theorist. Even now, Sunak doesn't argue that lockdown was a mistake, just that the many downsides in health, the economy and society in general could have been mitigated if they had been openly discussed. So it's unfortunate that lockdown has brought all of these negative consequences, but it wasn't a mistake because it was a brand new virus and we were just all doing the best we could under the notion of better safe than sorry. And those problems, too, could have been mitigated or maybe even eliminated at all if we had just openly discussed it. But we didn't do that. And we didn't tell the people about it so they could openly discuss it. And when they found out on their own and openly discussed it, we censored them. But you have to understand it's not our fault. We were just doing the best with what we were given. The problem is that there was no open discussion. But the reason there was no open discussion, well, that was also us. An official inquiry has begun, but Sunak says there are lessons to learn now. The emergence of another COVID variant or another new pathogen may lead to demands for another lockdown someday. One of the questions will be how to protect democratic scrutiny in a future crisis, how to ensure that robust questioning and testing of policy continues, even when it is expedient for the government to suppress the debate. So basically, they've learned nothing other than they should have talked about it more openly. But will they talk about it more openly? Will they inform the public, no chance. To Sanak, this was the problem at the heart of the government's COVID response, a lack of candor. There was a failure to raise difficult questions about where all this might lead and a tendency to use fear messaging to stifle debate instead of encouraging discussion. So in a sentence, how would he have handled the pandemic differently? I would have just had a more grown-up conversation with the country. And this is supposed to be heroic, but this is just an admission of guilt. He is relying on society to be the way it's presented by the media and the way it is thought of in the minds of the elite intellectual class, the people who all went along with the whole narrative, the people who still listen to whatever they're told. He's expecting everyone will just forget because they went along with it and they don't want to be blamed just like he doesn't want to be blamed. So they're all going to take this position. Oh, we understood it was a problem the whole time, but there was just nothing we could do about it. We understood that there was some doubt, but, you know, we didn't really want to weigh that doubt because of how uncomfortable it would make everybody. It was a really contentious time. Don't you understand? And we don't really have what it takes to make big decisions. That's what he's saying. He is absolutely as guilty as the people he's saying made him feel incredibly uncomfortable. There's no getting out of this. And now he wants more power so that next time those discussions can happen in a more adult way. Except the problem is still the global government and the problem is still the top down system. And no one is complaining about that at all. Certainly not Rishi Sunak. And why? Well, because he stands to benefit from that a great deal. And if this is any sign of what's to come in his future, he is going to continue being an apologist for the global government, for the very people who put all this stuff in place while excusing all of it. And the intellectual class in the UK will certainly go along with him because they don't want to be held responsible either. 
Now, I have to say, of all the days for me to miss doing a brand new episode, Monday, I really missed out on a good time because, as you know by now for sure, Anthony Fauci has announced that he will be resigning in December of this year, right before the freshly anointed America First Republicans in the House and Senate take office and begin investigating this little demon. And of course, it will be our responsibility to make sure not only that America First candidates do win in November, but that all of the GOP is set in investigating this absolute disgrace that has befallen the United States of America and holding all of these people accountable, not just Anthony Fauci. This is from the Daily Caller on Tuesday. Senator Rand Paul demands NIH preserve all documents and communications in Fauci's possession. Republican Kentucky Senator Rand Paul sent a letter on Tuesday to the National Institute of Health calling on them to preserve all documents and communications within Dr. Anthony Fauci's possession related to his tenure at NIH. The entire thing. In the letter first obtained by the Daily Caller, Paul called on the NIH to specifically preserve all records, emails, electronic documents and data created by or shared with Fauci during his tenure at NIH that relates to COVID-19 or to coronavirus research conducted by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, which Fauci has headed since 1984. Paul also called on the NIH to notify all current and former employees to preserve any relevant documents, communications, or other information. Dr. Fauci misled the American people on public health guidance throughout the pandemic, lied to Congress under oath, and funneled tax dollars to fund dangerous research in communist China. The American people deserve transparency and accountability from the NIH regarding the COVID-19 pandemic, regardless of Dr. Fauci's future employment plans. Paul told the caller before sending the letter. So Fauci is out and leaving in December before the Republicans take office, which should be seen pretty clearly as a sign that they know Republicans will be taking office. And so it doesn't matter what stories we get about how the GOP is failing here or there and Biden's paying off college loans to increase Turn out among young voters, people who already vote by mail, no matter what. Anyway, we're being shown obviously fake polls that show the Democrats making a comeback. We're hearing about how Joe Biden has stopped inflation and gas prices are dropping. Everything is getting slightly better. This is stuff people like me have been saying since a year and a half ago. They're going to make everything really terrible. And then in the lead up to the election, they just turn down the terrible a little bit and tell everyone that their lives are improving because that narrative will make sense if it's publicly accepted when the Democrats pull off election fraud and win. That's how they would support the election fraud. The election fraud doesn't work without the story. Without the story, no one would actually believe that the Democrats could win because they know What's happening in their own lives? They know what's happening in other people's lives that they associate with. They know that everybody is moving away from the COVID narrative. Everyone is moving away from the idea that Joe Biden might save everything. 
So the only way you can convince them that the Democrats could win is by supplying a whole bunch of stories that makes it seem like, oh, just maybe, maybe we just need to be scared of these globalists again. Oh, they're all powerful. They're going to steal another election and no one's ever going to find out. And this will just keep going on forever. But it won't. And that's ridiculous. If they thought they were in a position of power, why is Anthony Fauci leaving his job? He's still getting plenty of money. It's not like he works very hard. He goes out on TV to try to sell his wares, his experimental gene therapies, his magic potions to cure everybody of everything. But he basically just collects big money for being the face of pharmaceutical genocide and medical malpractice. And the Biden administration has ridden the Fauci train the entire time. You can't separate the two, although they are going to try. And speaking of narratives that they are actually going to try to sell the public on, this was a big piece out of Politico yesterday. Trump White House exerted pressure on FDA for COVID-19 emergency use authorizations. House report fines. The Trump administration pressured the Food and Drug Administration, including former FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn, to authorize unproven treatments for COVID-19 and the first COVID-19 vaccines on an accelerated timeline, according to a report released Wednesday by Democrats on the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis. Oh, is that as legitimate a committee as the January 6th Select Subcommittee? The Democrats did a report and found that everything was Trump's fault. My, my, that's shocking. Senior Trump administration officials fought for the reauthorization of hydroxychloroquine, a drug normally used to treat malaria and lupus after the FDA revoked its emergency clearance of the drug because data showed it was ineffective against COVID-19 and could lead to potentially dangerous side effects. The report found. That's what the Democrats report found. Now, does hydroxychloroquine work? Sure does. Is it dangerous? Sure isn't. They blocked it because it worked, and that's pretty well documented. I would once again suggest to everyone, as I always have and always will, read Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s book, The Real Anthony Fauci. He goes through all of this stuff. The Democrats' investigation also documents potential influence from former White House officials regarding the FDA's decision to authorize convalescent plasma and White House attempts to block the FDA from collecting additional safety data on COVID-19 vaccines in order to get them to the public before the 2020 presidential election. So they were released to the public just days after that election, but Trump was pressuring them to just avoid getting more data. That's what we're being told because he wanted to use the vaccine to help his reelection. It was always Trump's big plan. Get this vaccine out there. And then he stopped them from getting more data. He didn't actually care if the vaccine was safe or not. He wanted it out no matter what. Trump again is the bad guy. Did he mandate anybody take the vaccine? Sure didn't. Was he the guy that spent all his time calling the vaccine very safe and very effective around the clock for months and years? Sure wasn't. But they've got to try what they can. 
The select subcommittee's findings that Trump White House officials deliberately and repeatedly sought to bend FDA's scientific work on coronavirus treatments and vaccines to the White House's political will are yet another example of how the prior administration prioritized politics over public health. House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn, who also chairs the subcommittee, said in a statement, Jim Clyburn also chairs the South Carolina election fraud apparatus, it seems. He's the one who's consistently able to deliver wins for Democrat establishment candidates like Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden over Bernie Sanders, the candidate of all the grassroots communists. These assaults on our nation's public health institutions undermined the nation's coronavirus response. He added, how is that true? How is that true? They'll never tell us. Trump's a bad guy. Therefore, he must have undermined the response. Much of these pressure campaigns were reported in early 2020 by Politico and other outlets. And President Donald Trump publicly called out the FDA and its commissioner on multiple occasions. But the committee report offers new color through emails, texts and official testimony from Han about just how persistent some of these efforts inside the White House were throughout the summer and fall of 2020. A substantial portion of the report focuses on Peter Navarro, a former trade advisor under Trump who worked on the administration's coronavirus response. Navarro collaborated frequently with Stephen Hatfill, an adjunct virology professor at George Washington University, who was one of Navarro's advisors and worked on the federal coronavirus response. And so what we are seeing here is the formation of a switcheroo. They are going to go from saying the vaccines are extremely safe, extremely effective, and everyone must get them. In fact, we're going to mandate you to get them. And if somehow you still refuse not to get them, we're going to call you a domestic terrorist. We're going to say that you don't deserve medical care because you're not doing your part to save everyone else's grandmother. We're not going to let you travel. We're going to segregate the grocery store. We're not going to let your child go to school. And you know what? Even just on a personal level, all the vaxies are going to hate you and they're going to try to shame and bully you into doing everything they do. Even the things they do are based on absolutely no thought whatsoever. But of course, the data is and has been quite conclusive that the vaccines don't help anything and are actually extremely harmful. There's no way they can stop that data from coming out. And there was never going to be a way for them to do that. So what do they do instead? Instead, they try to give all the responsibility of the vaccines and the vaccine injuries, all the harms they have caused, everything that was done. That'll all be Trump's fault. And, you know, Trump supporters are very stupid and they don't like vaccines. So they'll blame it on Trump, too. And then they'll realize, oh, we should have just listened to the experts the whole time. It was Trump's fault. The experts were trying to delay things just for a few more days or weeks or months till they could get that data. Of course, they had all that data at the beginning of 2021. It's in their actual documents. You can see all the work Naomi Wolf's team has done on the Pfizer documents you can understand they knew all along that the vaccines were not safe and not effective and actually were very harmful. But rather than releasing that data and telling everybody that unfortunately the vaccines 
don't seem to be working, they sold more of them. They began creating more contracts and sending millions and millions of doses around the world. They made different countries pay into centralized funds to buy vaccines and then distribute them with COVAX. They even sued to keep all that data under wraps for 75 more years. But we're being told now that Trump wouldn't allow them the time to collect more data as if they were going to stop. The whole thing's absurd. And we've been talking about this for a very long time. I have been arguing about Trump's role in the vaccine agenda for a year and a half. The responsibilities for the vaccines and the consequences of the vaccine agenda cannot be laid at Trump's feet no matter what they do. They were intending to lock us down for a very, very long time, years. The vaccine is a big part of the reason why those lockdowns are not still continuing to this day. Imagine the devastation across societies if that had occurred. And that was the plan. Trump didn't mandate vaccines. He said it should be people's option. He didn't force anyone to take it. There would have been no other way out of the scenarios that they had planned, that they were putting in place. The vaccine wasn't supposed to come out for years. It wasn't going to be more effective. It wasn't going to be safer. It wasn't going to even be any more necessary. COVID variants get weaker. We don't need a COVID vaccine at all. The vaccine only opened society and caused problems for the people who took it. And while that is very sad, it was still the choice of those individual people to take it. No matter how much duress, no matter how much bullying and shaming, no matter how much marketing, it was everyone's individual decision. They did not look at it as a life or death decision, and they should have. If they had examined it, giving the decision the weight it was due, they would have made a different decision. They chose to remain ignorant about it. They chose to go along with the program, or maybe they chose their jobs or their circle of friends or their ability to travel. They all have justifications for why they made the bad decision, but the truth is they just didn't think it was going to be a life or death decision, and certainly not to them. And people like them, people like them would never lie about this stuff. The people on television and the experts and the scientists, they would never lie about this, not to people like them. And so they went along with it. And the results are exactly what were expected and will probably get quite a bit worse. And everyone's going to see them. So what does the media do? Well, the only thing they can do is try to shift the blame and protect all of the people in the pharmaceutical industry, people like Anthony Fauci and the entirety of the media and social media who supported this entire narrative. And that's exactly what they're going to do. They're going to go from these vaccines are critical to achieving herd immunity, to getting society back on track and to saving lives. They're going to go from that to actually these vaccines are extremely poisonous and it's Donald Trump's fault. And no one's going to believe it because no one believes any of this nonsense. And you don't have to take my word for it while the public conversation continues to suggest that everybody believes this nonsense. You can just ask them. They don't defend it anymore. They just want everyone to forget they ever did. But it's too late for that. 
And they kind of know that too. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!